Good morning. If you have your Bibles, if you'd please turn to Hebrews chapter 10, starting with verse 26. We'll be starting there. Uh, while you're turning there, you've probably heard it said, or if not, you've heard it said to somebody else, I have some good news and I have some bad news. Which do you want first? And oftentimes based on either your personality or how good you think the good news is and how bad you think the bad news is, you may make a choice on which you want to hear first and second. The scriptures generally give us the good news first. Uh, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all the gospels. Gospel means good news. And so it's a discussion of the good news of Jesus Christ and that he came uh, to the world to save sinners like you and me, that he is the son of God and that he is uh, giving his life a ransom for many. So that's the good news. The interesting thing is, is while we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the Gospels, if you will, pretty much all the New Testament is good news. We've looked previously in Hebrews, talking about how Jesus' sacrifice is superior because it is eternal, uh, that it is in the uh, holy of holies in heaven, not made with hands. And so it's good news that we are forgiven and that we can draw near to God and that we can find help and uh, grace in time of need. And so if you will, all the scriptures are good news, but there is also contained within the scriptures, warnings, and if you will, bad news. So the good news is great news. There is no better news than what the Gospels present. But when it comes to the bad news, it is really, really, really bad. So we're going to take a look at the warning that the writer of Hebrews gives the readers about their failure to believe in Jesus as the Son of God and his sacrifice. So in verse 26, it says this, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So he's saying here that after having been confronted with the gospel, having been confronted with the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, that he laid down his life, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day, after being presented with that truth and you walk away from that truth, there's no further any sacrifices that will be made. Jesus is your last and only hope. There is not another Messiah coming after Jesus. He is it. And so you can't say, well, I'll wait for the next Messiah because there isn't one. It is Jesus. So it says, if you continue willfully sinning and moving as if there is no God and that Jesus has no impart of your life, then uh, there remains no longer a sacrifice for sins. You are now responsible for your sins. Then he says, but, and this is one of those, if you will, bad buts in the sense of many times you'll say, I really like you, but, and that but takes away all of the um, positives that you heard. Sometimes the but can be, things are terrible, but look up. Here it's saying, there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sins, but there's now a new thing happening, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. 
So we see a couple of things here. First off, if you do not accept the good news, if you do not accept that Jesus is the Messiah, that he died for you, that he is your Lord, there then is a consequence, and that consequence is a terrifying expectation of judgment. When my son was um, a teenager and, um, and uh, an adolescent, he had a tendency not to give me the, I have some good news and I have some bad news alternative. It's kind of like, I have a problem or I have a, uh, something to tell you. And by his personality and his style of delivery, he wouldn't just come out with it. And so while you're, while you're waiting for him to tell you what the problem is, your mind is going to all these terrible things that could have taken place. And when he, when he told me what the problem was or what the difficulty was or the bad news, it wasn't nearly as bad as I had anticipated because I had those times of thinking, uh-oh, this is really going to be bad. Now, I don't know if he did that intentionally or it was just whatever, but it was that sense of, almost relief that the bad news wasn't nearly as bad as I was anticipating. But in this case, it says there no longer remains but a terrifying expectation of judgment. Now, I want you to think that the worst case scenario of how terrifying God can be, you're not even close. I'll give you an example. When God was going to meet with his people on Mount Sinai and delivered the law and his voice was going to be there. He was going to invite the people up upon the mountain, but they did not want to because they were afraid. Now this is the God who delivered them from Egypt. This is the God who showed his signs and his wonders and delivered them out of the powerful hand of the most uh, powerful empire at the time. And that not only did he deliver them out as slaves, they came and then he had them part through the Red Sea on dry land and that he fed them manna from heaven and he provided water and all these good things that God did for them. And so God was on their side. God was their deliverer. God was their God. And even when they were his and had no reason to fear him. Just the awesomeness of who he is caused them to be fearful. So you can not imagine, if you will, if you're not his friend. If you are his enemy, his adversary. Now, unfortunately, when it comes to God and, and Jesus, there are no agnostics. You're either for him or you're against him. There is no neutral. You're not Switzerland. You are either a believer or you're not. And if you're not a believer, then the scripture says that there is a wrath of God. There is this anger because God is angry with sin and he doesn't tolerate it. And so what remains if you're not a believer, the bad news is, is that there is a terrifying expectation of judgment. And it says, anyone, in verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, what the writer here is telling us is that under the law, 
If you violated the law, it only took one or two, it took two or three people. Uh, the testimony of one wasn't sufficient. It was always, you had to at least have two or three witnesses to confirm the facts. If you violated the law, and especially if you blasphemed God, or you worshipped another God, another graven image, then you would be subject to being stoned to death. And there was no mercy there. The sin was you blasphemed God's name, and therefore you must die. And it, it, there wasn't mercy. There wasn't exceptions. You couldn't say, well, you know, that guy was really good to puppies, and he really liked kittens. You know, he wasn't such a bad guy. He had some good qualities. The scripture says there's no mercy. You violate God's law. You then result with the consequences. And here the scripture is saying, if God takes his word seriously, which the writer says was God's word did not make us perfect, but it was better than, and now he's saying he's given his son, therefore, if that which was not as perfect as the, his word delivered in the flesh, and they received no mercy, then you can expect no mercy when it comes to the time of judgment if you reject his son. And he goes on in verse 29. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? So the writer is saying, okay, if, if under Moses you were going to die without mercy, what do you think God is going to do when you reject his son, the gospel said, for God so loved the world, the father so loved the world that he sent his son, his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. If God loved us and God sent his son, then he's saying, if you violated the old covenant, can you imagine how much more severe the punishment will be if you violate that? In one instance, under the law, you died a physical death. If you reject Jesus as Lord, you will not only die a physical death, you will die a spiritual death. So he says, if you trample under the, the Son of God, which means you hold him in contempt, it doesn't matter. You know, yeah, Jesus was a good teacher or whatever, and you don't really understand and accept just who he is and was, that you regard with, if, again, with contempt, you trample underfoot the Son of God. I want to stop there and, and give you an, an, another reminder. You'll find in a book that you probably rarely read, Deuteronomy, and in chapter 4, it tells that Moses is giving, if you will, a sermon to the children of Israel before they enter into the promised land. And his statement was, if you go back to Adam and Eve and you go to the present time, there has never been another nation that God has taken by the hand that has delivered them out of slavery, has spoken to them, has led them as his own people and was able to conquer other nations 
for their purposes and that God has done that thing for Israel, which started out as a family, as an individual, then a family, then a nation. And he said, no one, not as proud as we are to be Americans, can say that God delivered us in the way that he delivered Israel out of Egypt. And if you will, from Israel's day to today, there is no other case where a nation can say God personally delivered us, that he showed his signs and his wonders, that he walked with us by a cloud of uh, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud of, by day, f- showing them their way and leading them and being present with them and to deliver the law and to speak verbally to them. There's never been another nation from Adam and Eve until present. But I want you to think one other thing. There has never been another God because there is no God, but there's been no, never another God other than ours who loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. Sure, there are those religions who will send their sons to die for their God. But our Father, which is in heaven, sent his Son because we had a need and he loved us and provided that need for us. And so if God so loved us and he sent his Son, then he will not take lightly the trampling under our feet what his Son did for us and what God's love sent him to do for us. And it says, and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. He's saying, when Jesus offered that New Testament blood of of himself to write his law upon our heart, to be there for us, to be his people, and that the law is not written on tablets, but on our heart. He's saying, if you treat that with such unclean, treating the, the blood as if it were unclean, if it was of no account rather than being holy, then God again has that much more wrath, if you will. And then a third thing says, and has insulted the spirit of grace. You have the opportunity to be a believer because the grace of God and the spirit of God draws men and women to him. But there will come a time when the spirit won't. And you can't. And so by rejecting the call by the Holy Spirit on your life to follow Jesus as Lord, he's saying, there's nothing left for you but that terrifying expectation of judgment because you treated God's son with contempt, that you did not consider his blood holy And that you, in essence, by rejection of the offer by the Spirit, you've insulted God. Therefore, verse 34, we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. So when we see people reject God, it is not our responsibility to find vengeance or to find judgment, that is God's. 
plan, that is God's function, that is God's responsibility, that is God's role. We are simply to present the good news and also the bad news so that people might have the opportunity to come to him. But the vengeance, the judgment, the result of that rejection of Christ is based on God. Now notice it also says, and the Lord will judge his people. Judgment always begins at the house of God. God will judge his people who do not follow him properly, but not the way we've just described here, in a way that as a loving father corrects his children, God will correct us that we might follow him more correctly and accurately. But just because judgment begins with the house of God doesn't mean it ends there. It says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. As I said before, those who he freed from slavery, those whom he had fed, those whom he had provided for, for those he had spoken to, they were afraid of him and they were on God's side and God was on their side. But it is a terrifying thing. Again, God is so holy that people just say, well, I will, just, I will tell God, well, I did more good things than bad things, and I did this, and my intentions were good, and, and, well, you know, and, I did, and they give all kinds of excuses. That's great. I've seen people go into a courtroom without a lawyer. And they intend to explain to the judge why they shouldn't be held responsible for a speeding ticket or something. And before they're done, they either are unable to give a cogent argument or they end up admitting that they were wrong and the judge convicts them. Because being in front of a judge who has the power to fine you or to put you in jail or prison can be a scary thing. But when you appear before the judge of heaven, the holy God, the God who gave you an opportunity to repent and follow him, and you rejected him, There are no good excuses. You will not be able to speak because you will know that you are guilty. And all that you have left is terror. Not a good story, not good excuses, but you stand in the presence of a holy God. Verse 32, here comes a positive but. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. The writer is saying, you're not those guys. You're not the ones who have rejected Jesus. You're not the ones who held him in contempt, but you're the ones who came to that knowledge and you were enlightened, 
And there was a time when you gratefully accepted tribulation and conflict and sufferings because you knew that in comparison to what God had offered, there was no comparison. You might be able to take my life, but God gives me eternal life. You may be able to take my silver and gold, but the streets of heaven are paved with it. It doesn't matter. The Lord said, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. So he's saying, you are those people who not only suffered, but when others suffered, you joined in them. You, you prayed for them. You suffered with them. You encouraged them. Whether they suffered or you suffered, you were a, a group of people, a church in which you stood by. Even though the rest of the world treated you and them that way. For you showed sympathy to the prisoner and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have your, for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. We have the possession of that which is in heaven. Again, as I've said, the scriptures say that you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead and that there are rewards that the Lord will give us for being faithful to sharing in these tribulations and these persecutions and these unjust treatments. The scripture says we're to, to be joyful and rejoice because our reward in heaven will be great. So they understand they're looking at not what is temporary, but that which is permanent. You can be the richest person on earth and you can't take it with you. As I say every so often, you will find no U-Haul trailer attached to behind a hearse. You cannot take it with you. And even if you can, the problem is, is that you have to, if you're rich, protect yourself. You have to have guards and safes and banks. And even that, even those things that we hold dear will rust. You can buy the most expensive vehicle. And if you don't maintain it, it will rust and fall apart. So he's telling these people, you know the true value of what God has offered to us, his love, his patience, his faithfulness, and the rewards which we have in heaven. And you know that what is here on earth, you cannot hold on to even if you tried. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. God is, is awesome. God has called us. We have been saved because he called us because of what he did. That is by his grace that we are saved. We do those things in honor of him because he told us those are the things that he wants us to do. He has told us forgive as he is forgiven. He has told us to love one another as he is loved. He has set the example and we only do what he, we have been told to do. There's none of us who come up with a new idea of how to minister to God. And even in that scenario, God says, you do what I tell you to do, even though I'm an unprofitable servant, God says, I want to reward you. Hold on to that confidence. 
Yeah, sometimes it doesn't look good now, but hold on because there is great reward, great eternal reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. All too often, people start out great, but then they slow down and stop. There is an initial excitement when you are called by God and you become a believer and you start running the race with vigor and all that you have. And then you start getting tired or you hear of the temptations and you slow down to a walk or maybe you just simply stand still because you say, I'm tired. The writer is saying, you need to have endurance. I frequently use the example of a 100-yard or 100-meter dash, that you can be the fastest in the first 90 or 99 meters, but if you don't cross the finish line, you lose. But in essence, the Christian life is not a sprint. It is a long-distance race. It starts from the moment you're called, and it ends when you breathe your last. So we need endurance. There is a African tribal statement that says, if you want to run fast, run alone. If you want to run far, run as a group. Well, that's what, in essence, Christianity says is, as a group, we run together to encourage one another. And sometimes maybe you have a strained quad. And so I'll help you continue on to the race until your quad is well. And then maybe my diaphragm is such that it's just hurting and my side is hurting. And then someone else helps me move on because we need endurance. It's not a few moments and then it's over. And so he says, remember, you need that endurance. But as you remember that you need that endurance, understand that the reward is great. There are those who will to run the marathon and some will receive a cash prize and, and some will receive some kind of uh, victory trophy or whatever. And the Greek uh, times, uh, they gave you a... a leafy uh, crown, which meant that by the time the next year came around, the crown would dust and fall away. But people would compete for the opportunity of gaining that prize. Well, God has promised us great and eternal rewards. We should remember that and keep one foot in front of the other, in front of the other, and run the race that is set before us. Not to stand still in the race, not to walk in the race, but to remember that we need endurance and that it's worth it in the end because God promised it. God didn't just say it. And as we've already seen in Hebrews, it is impossible for God to lie. And yet he makes not only statements, he makes promises and the promises of a great reward. Verse 37, quoting the Old Testament. 
For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. I know there are times it just seems like, well, God, just hurry up and get here. It just seems so far. But he'll be coming and won't delay. But my righteous ones shall live by faith. He's telling us, those of us who have answered the call, those of us who know the truth, those of us who have accepted Jesus as not just our Lord, but our Savior, the one that we follow, the one that we are his disciples, that we respond in faith. Now, in the next chapter, the writer is going to talk about what faith is. But in essence, he says, that is what we live by. The righteous lives by faith. If God says it, we do it. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So the, the options are set. You can run the race and accept God's promises, or you can accept a terrifying expectation of falling back, which God will take no pleasure in. Finally, in verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. The writer here in this middle of this chapter has given us bad news, terrifying news, news that we would just sooner not hear. As a matter of fact, so much so that so many Churches no longer talk about hell or judgment because people don't want to hear it. But the opposite of the good news is the terrible bad news. And he, the writer here says, I have confidence. You're the ones who don't shrink back. You're not the ones who are apostate. You are the ones who have faith. And that faith will preserve your soul. Spend a moment in reflection of what God has done for us. And if you need to make a decision for him, now would be the opportunity to do that. Let's go in prayer and in reflection.